Well, thank you very much indeed for coming. Um, what I've Claire wasn't quite right, actually. I haven't been a lecturer since 1989, only for the last uh, seven years. But I have been in Oxford since 1989, uh, partly because when I got my first postdoctoral fellowship after my PhD in 1980, I thought, this is the best job in the world, and I will carry it on as long as I can. So I was 28 years a postdoc in <laughs> three different universities, which I think is a record for this country. And... Uh, the in, yes. <laughs> and uh, so I was a postdoc for about 17 years in Oxford before I became uh, a permanent member of staff. And during that uh, 25 years, in fact the last 30 years, I've been going out pretty much every year to the Himalayas, various parts of the Himalayas in India, Pakistan, Nepal and Tibet. And uh, this talk is going to be roughly about the, the last 30 years of my research and travels. It won't be very geological, I realise most of you aren't geologists. Um, but I will try and introduce some of it. And of course the reason, or part of the reason of this, is I've just published this book with the Oxford University Press, which is for sale outside. Uh, it's quite amazing, really. It takes you 30 years of work, and it's sold at a price less than a round of beer in the Rosen Crown. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the way of the world, unfortunately. Right, uh, the Alpine Himalayan mountain range. Well, this is the biggest. The Himalayas are the biggest and best mountain range in the world. There's no question about that. And this is the reason we work there as geologists. It's the highest, it's the thickest crust, the most active tectonics, and it has the most fantastically uh, young and deep exposures. This is a picture of the Trango Towers in the middle of the Karakoram in Pakistan. Uh, that is uh, two kilometres of vertical exposure through a granite, which you can't see in the highlands of Scotland or uh, anywhere else on the planet, really. To put it into scale, this is the highest man-made structure, which is the Burj Dubai, uh, just over 800 metres, and this is uh, two kilometres vertical cliff face of granite. Well, of course, if you want to see it, you have to go out there and not only climb, uh, map it, but you have to climb up and down. So the basic story of the Himalayas is that it's a part of the world here in Central Asia, and it's part of the great alpine uh, Neo-Tethian zone, which is the collision zone between the Gondwana supercontinents to the south, Africa, Arabia, India, which were all amalgamated in the south, and the great Asian continents to the north. And this ocean lasted about 250 million years from uh, the Permian times up until uh, very recent times. And there's only a few parts of the world where there is a still a relic bit of Tethys left. That's in the Gulf of Oman here, and a little bit in northern Cyprus. In blue are all the Ophiolite complexes, which are the ocean crust and mantle rocks that are preserved within the suture zone that tell us what the Tethian ocean floor was like. So the story of my work anyway and of this lecture is going to start off in the mountains of Omar where I did my PhD and uh, all of these dark looking rocks here are ophiolites. They're slabs of oceanic crust and upper mantle that live in the oceans but are now abducted or emplaced onto continental margins like the Oman. And the Oman one is by far the biggest and the best of these in the world. And it's a desert country, so there's almost 100% exposure. These are the mantle rocks, which you never see. They're at least, uh, well, 35 kilometres or more beneath where we are standing at the moment. And in the oceans, the oceanic crust is anything up to about seven or eight kilometres thick. And here it's quite amazing. You can walk along the Moho, which is the, artificial, the geophysical boundary between the crust and the mantle, uh, for the whole length of the mountains. You can walk around the lower crust, you can walk around a magma chamber, 
and map how those rocks channel up via dikes into uh, pillow lavas at the top. So this is a section, it's about 20 kilometres thick, section through the Oman Ophiolite, which is a proxy for what the ocean crust and the mantle is made of. This is the Moho, which is the boundary between the crust and the mantle. In the continents, this is anything up to, well, 70 kilometres thick in Tibet, normally about 30 to 40 kilometres thick. In the oceans, only much thinner. And it's composed of layered gabbros, sheeted dikes and pillow lavas, and that's what two-thirds of the planet is made of all of the ocean crust in the great oceans of the world. And uh, the mantle underneath this is uh, largely ultramafic, composed of Hartsburgite and Dunite in particular. And Oman's a classic region for many reasons, but one of them is that something like two-thirds of the world's oil and gas reserves are locked up in these rocks up here, which are exposed in Oman, but occur right through the Persian Gulf region from at least... Uh, western Iran and Iraq all the way to Oman and the Oman mountains everywhere else it's buried so you have to drill through the rocks to get to the oil uh, reservoirs but in Oman the mountains uh, are exposed up these incredible canyons and you can actually see it and log it and map it so every oil company that works in the Middle East loves going to these wadis in Oman to do the most intricate detailed stratigraphy and structural work. And this is what a cross-section through the Oman Mountains looks like. Here's the Ophiolite in red, mantle and crust, emplaced onto the Tethian passive margin sequence. And all the oil and gas reserves are in structures like this in the foreland, whose structures are completely controlled by this emplacement of Ophiolites. So that all happened before the continents collide. Once the two continents collide, we're into a completely different realm altogether, and the story of the Himalayas uh, starts off back in the Middle Cretaceous, about 120 million years ago, when India, which was attached onto Madagascar, Southern Africa and Antarctica, they all rifted away and India moved very rapidly northwards across the Indian Ocean to collide with Asia, roughly down at equatorial latitudes, about 50 million years ago. Since then, India has moved north by about 2,000 kilometres, indenting into Asia and forming the mountain ranges that we see in the Himalayas and Tibet. So here's a picture taken from the space shuttle. As the shuttle comes in to the Earth's atmosphere, it flips, it comes in upside down and it flips over onto its front. So this is the tail fin of the Challenger. And it's coming into the Earth's atmosphere roughly above Kathmandu. We're looking west along the Himalayan axis here. And this is the Great Plateau of Tibet, which is nearly 2,000 kilometres wide and the highest uh, part of uh, the continents we see today. Um, so the basic structure of the Himalaya looks like this. Uh, to the south, India, the southern boundary of the Himalayas is what we call the main boundary thrust. This is the active southern margin of the Himalayas along which all the big earthquakes are rattling off today and they're occurring down at depths anything between about 20 kilometres deep and 10 kilometres deep. Underneath that, India is moving north at about 5 uh, sorry, 50 millimetres a year, and under-thrusting the Himalayas and Tibet, and all of what we see preserved in the Himalayas are the earlier parts of the collision process, the metamorphic rocks that once formed the northern margin of India. We can take all those folds in the Himalayas and unravel them, and we can get to what India looked like prior to the abduction, to the collision of India with Asia. 
And at this stage, it looks very much like the Oman, with big ophiolites in th thrusting onto the margin. And the Indian plates, including the, some of the oldest rocks in the world, the Archean, and a thick Mesozoic cover, exactly as, as we see all along the Himalayan, Alpine Himalayan belt. So what do these rocks look like in the field? Well, I'm going to take you on a bit of a geotour right through the whole of the Himalayan belt. And we're going to start off up at the top at the upper crustal parts of India and what they look at, what they look like now. So you remember that picture of the wadi I showed you in Oman, the pristine Mesozoic carbonates with the oil reserves in? These are exactly the same rocks, but they are isoclinally folded and thickened enormously. That's what happens when continents collide. You start off folding them. The folding creates thick crust. You increase pressure, increase temperature. This is in the middle of Ladakh, for anyone who knows the region. Uh, the Spontang Ophiolite is up here in the clouds. It's all above 5,000 metres. And the Zanskar River is down in this gorge here. So that cliff section there is about four kilometres deep. Um, how do we know when India and Asia collided? Uh, well, one, there's several ways we can figure out when, but the most accurate is uh, along the, both the Indian margin and the Asian margin. The sedimentary history of the rocks goes from marine, which are these white limestones. They're full of fossils, marine fossils that lived in shallow tropical ocean. And these dark rocks, which are all conglomerates and fluviatile sandstones, so they are continental. So we're going from marine to continental. We can date the fossils here absolutely precisely. And the youngest marine fossils in these rocks right here are 50.5 million years ago. So we know that after 50 million years ago, there was no ocean left between India and Asia. The continents had collided and the structures started forming. <coughs> uh, OK, a few pictures of what these rocks look like. This is the main... Indus Valley in Ladakh. This is the main road, actually, that goes from Kashmir to Leh, which is over here. Uh, so Tibet, Asia is on the left, and these are all the rocks in the suture zone, very much like the Oman rocks, but um, hugely uh, deformed, folded. These are the uh, tiny foraminiferal fossils that we can use for dating the, the, these rocks. And they're about, the biggest ones are about the size of your fingernail. I've got a few examples outside. These same rocks are isoclinally folded around here, and you can actually put your finger on the stratigraphic part where it goes from marine to continental. So that's when we know that India and Asia collided 50 million years ago. After that, the sutures out, the Himalayas were starting to form, and along the place of collision, a deep basin developed, and all of these rocks are rocks that were eroded off the Himalayas and deposited in this deep basin. And again, we can use various stratigraphic and radiometric methods of dating the rocks to figure out the entire unroofing history of the Himalayas, when they were formed and when those rocks were deposited in the basin. This is what those same rocks look like today. This is just east of Leh. This is Stakna Monastery, a big Buddhist monastery in the Indus Valley. And these are the very young tertiary molasse sediments that again are folded and shortened all the way. So what's it like working in Leh? Well, I first went to Leh in 1981, very soon after it first opened to Western tourism. And it was absolutely a fabulous place. This is a sort of small version of the Patala Palace in Lhasa. It's 90% of Buddhist region Ladakh. And uh, the country is, was 
spectacular. It was like Tibet prior to the Chinese occupation and unfortunately about 90% of the monasteries all through Tibet were completely destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. This is a picture of Ley in the 1980s and uh, what I did was um, just hire a guide and a horse and head off, buy a month's worth of food and head off south trekking along these little horse paths that uh, followed all the valleys up through the Himalayas. But it was a spectacular time to be there and um, a really amazing country. Uh, Ladakh is still one of my favourite parts of the world. Uh, absolutely delightful people. This is a chap I've walked across the Himalayas three times with, or part of it, him and his horse. And Fida, who's a very good friend of mine I've known for 30 years, who runs a hotel in Leh, still I know him as well. Well, you can take a horse or a yak, head off across the Himalayas. You have a bit of trouble when you come to the big rivers because there's these rope bridges and you cannot get a yak across one of those. And they, these are a bit scary. When you get in the middle here, the whole thing's swaying around. You've got two arms out here and trying to do a sort of balancing act on the middle. Uh, most of these old bridges are gone now. They've either fallen down, sometimes with people on them, or they've been, the Indian Army has replaced them with sort of horrible new steel bridges. Uh, and everywhere we went, there were these fantastic Buddhist monasteries with festivals. These are classic Ladakhi uh, monks in some of the monasteries up there. And uh, these are the sort of trails we were working along, uh, doing geological mapping along each one of these. And some of these trips lasted six or seven weeks, leaving the Indus Valley in Ley, going all the way down to Manali, uh, camping out most of the time. And it was a great way to live, actually, just sort of get the stove out, make a brew, a cup of Indian chai, make a few chapatis. Food was pretty abysmal. Uh, but the scenery and everything else made well up for it. It really was a, a wonderful time to be in Ladakh and to see the sort of pristine Tibetan culture prior to all of the uh, tourism. And, um, yeah, some of the bridges definitely left a bit to be desired. But uh, when you wanted to go from A to B, you have to cross it. So you end up doing all sorts of uh, great rope tricks. Rivers were much easier, except where the horse fell over and drowned all the gear. And everywhere you went, spectacular mountain scenery, and you can see that there's almost 100% rock exposure. So you look around Oxford and there's about 0.1% exposure out there. Everything's laid out in front of you. You can't miss it. Um, so I'd worked in Ladakh for about 10 years, and there was this huge area right in the middle where there was a big blank on the map. Nobody had ever been in there and mapped it. We had no idea what it was made of. And I was walking along with one of my first PhD students in Oxford and I was telling him about this fantastic trip from Zanskar back to Leh where the local people walk on the ice. It's the only way out. The Zanskar Valley is right in the middle of the Himalayas and for seven months of the year they're completely snowed in. They can't move. So they just wait till the river freezes and then they walk out. It's an eight-day trek to go do your shopping or put your kids to school and these kids, sort of this big, were shuffling along, going to school, eight days along the ice. And I thought, wow, we've got to do this trip. It absolutely sounds fantastic. So we went there in the winter of 1995, flew in on uh, New Year's Day. And luckily that year it was pretty cold. Uh, you have to be very certain that the ice is going to stay frozen because if it melts, there's no way out. You can probably get out of the river, but you would never be able to get out to the valley and you certainly couldn't get a helicopter or anything up here. 
That ice there was about this thick, so it was pretty thick. You could leap up and down on it. But sometimes the whole thing would just give way while you were on it. It would just sink and groan and crack. And it was quite, quite a scary place to, um, to be. And this is what it was like. We had seven days walking along the frozen river. Uh, there's my PhD student for scale. Um, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have health and safety forms in those days. Thank the Lord. Uh, but it, is, it was a wonderful uh, thing to do. And every time where we camped in the winter through the gorge, every morning we would get up and there would be snow leopard tracks all around the tent. Um, a very good friend of mine who actually lives in Oman, painter, he um, sets up these remote cameras all over uh, the southern mountains of Oman where looking at the Arabian leopard, which is incredibly endangered. There's only about 300 left in the world in Yemen and Oman. And for the last six years, he's been going up in Ladakh in the middle of winter. And this is one of the best pictures that he's taken. So there's a pressure plate there, which he set up, remote controlled camera, and uh, came back a week later. There was a whole bunch of ibex and foxes and things. And then suddenly there was this. And I think that is just the most beautiful picture I have ever seen. That picture's in my book, so <laughs> do go and buy it. <laughs> Okay, geology, that's what I was there for, partly. Um, so this is the upper crustal sedimentary rocks of Zanskar. What I've done here, these are unmetamorphosed, so they've never been deeply buried. I'll show you pictures from the Himalayas where these same rocks have gone down to 40, 50 kilometres. The yellow lines are just tracing along the bedding to prick out the folds, and the red lines are thrust faults where the fold has actually cracked. And these thrust faults are what causes earthquakes in those days. And you can see that the whole upper part of the Indian crust after the collision of India with Asia, that, this is exactly how the Himalayas were formed. You start off with one fold, the fold propagates, you have a hundred folds, that thickens the crust. When you thicken the crust, you increase pressure, you increase temperature, and the deeper you go, the hotter and the higher pressure the rocks are, until finally they melt. And a lot of the peaks are the high Himalayas, are actually composed of these partially molten granites uh, from the final products of the mountain building process. So this is an aerial picture looking down. The winter gorge trip we did winds down through here. This is the ophiolite in here. Of course, in winter, it's, um, it's about minus 30 we had in the gorge most days, so it's pretty cold. And, of course, the further south you go, the thicker the snow. The further north you go, you're in the rain shadow in Tibet, and the less snow, so it's a very dry atmosphere in Ladakh and Tibet. So the first effects of the India-Asia collision was the subduction of the Indian continent down to incredibly high pressures. These rocks here started life off as basalts up at the surface. They're now rocks we call eclogites, which are composed of garnet and clinoperoxene, red and green, and these rocks have been down to 29 kilobars, which is equivalent to about 120 kilometres depth. This is a spectacular boulder of some of the freshest eclogite in the world. It's in northern Pakistan. These are good old Talibani people who uh, were, in my day, incredibly friendly and pleasant. Unfortunately, that whole region has uh, disintegrated nowadays. Um, and we can do all sorts of clever things with those rocks. In those rocks are these tiny uranium-bearing minerals, alanite, zircon, titanite, which give, you can date using uranium-lead isotopes. 
You can figure out the pressure and therefore the depth, the temperature and the time of formation of these rocks. And that's what we're trying to do with all of these metamorphic rocks right across the Himalayas. And once you have all of those parameters, pressure, depth, temperature and time, you can use that for constructing big tectonic models and structures as to how the crust works. So these are two very simple general diagrams of the western Himalayas in Ladakh, where the brown rocks are the deepest rocks, the, the high-grade metamorphic rocks, and the green are the intermediate, and the brown are the upper crustal sediments, which have never been deeply buried. And um, about 20 years ago, we came up with this spectacular model. We figured out, working along the Zanskar Valley, that all of these rocks were actually right way up. The higher up you went structurally, the lower the pressure and temperature, which is what you would expect. But the entire southern part of the Himalayas, everything was upside down. The entire southern part of the Himalayas is upside down. And in Zanskar, you can actually walk around from these isograds around to the top. And this has to be one of the largest folds in the world. It's a fold of metamorphic isograds. It looks like this on the ground. This is in, on the Kashmir-Zanskar border. And uh, when you go into the deeper structural parts of the Himalayas, the rocks look like these. The white rocks are all granites, and these are the deepest, deepest parts of the Himalayas where the rocks have actually started to melt to form these big granite mountains up here. I've got samples of all of these outside if you're interested. That, that's the trail, that's the donkey path, going from Himachal Pradesh out towards Kashmir, and this was our main route of access along the Chenab River. Uh, again, you wouldn't, you'd have trouble getting horses up there, so most of it was carrying rocks. So to summarise things very briefly, uh, the first phase is, if you like to think of it, as the Oman phase of mountain building. This is before the continents collided. Huge slabs of ocean crust and mantle in red in placed onto the margin. At this time, the eclogite rocks, I showed you the high-pressure rocks, are right there, very shallow. But they are dragged down to about 120 kilometres depth during the first stages of the collision. And then, because most of the continental margin is carbonate, which is very buoyant and light, you cannot take it down into the mantle. So the slab breaks off and all of the rocks just come straight back up. It's a bit like sort of diving to the bottom of a swimming pool with a champagne cork, letting it go. Cork pops up to the surface. So those eclogites are now entrained in the basal crust of the Indian plate, subjected to all the regional metamorphism of kyanite, which is a beautiful blue mineral, and sulimonite, which is the mineral that is the precursor to all the crustal melting. I have samples of all of these in the tray outside. So this is the model that we came up with. It's called channel flow. And it's basically where the entire middle part of the crust of the Himalayas was partially molten. Not now, but in the Miocene, about 20 to 15 million years ago. And it was extruded out to the south. It's a bit like having a jelly sandwich or a custard cream. And you thump the top of the custard cream and the middle crust shoots out. And it's bounded at the bottom by this huge shear zone, the main central thrust, and at the top by a low angle normal fault. So we know that the Himalayas has moved south relative to the Zanskar upper crust and the Indian lower crust. And this was a structure that had never been described from any other mountain range, and it's pretty much unique to the Himalayas. 
And it's the same all the way along. Two and a half thousand kilometers along the length of the Himalayas, the structures of that channel flow are pretty similar. And the end results of that channel flow are melting. And the melts produce these beautiful granites, which form a lot of the highest peaks. These are in, in the source of the Ganges in northern India, in the Garhwal Himalaya. And um, we've had a couple of expeditions up to climb shivaling. One of the things we were doing was vertical sampling up and down one of these big Luca granites. And uh, we managed to get up to about 200 feet below the summit on our second attempt, uh, but managed to get back a whole array of samples from up and down the whole mountain. Uh, it was quite tricky climbing, lots of avalanches, uh, big stories. Um, and looking across the valley every day would be high on shivaling, looking across at these beautiful Bhagirathi peaks. The Gangotri Glacier is down here. That's where all the sadhus go because it's the holiest of the holies, the source of the Ganges River. Uh, and then the last 20 years or so, I've moved a little bit sort of further east towards Everest, and I've been working in the Everest region for getting on for 20 years now. Uh, I have a geological map of that out at, out at the back. Um, despite everybody going up to Everest, it is an absolutely fantastic part of the world. It really is spectacular. The mountains are great. Everyone, if you go in the spring or the autumn, everyone is trekking up to Everest Base Camp. You go 100 metres off either side of the trail, there's nobody. Absolutely, you have the valley to yourself. It's quite incredible. This is the map, which is about 15 years' work of my compilation. £10, absolute bargain going outside. Uh, I do a lot of talks for Doug Scott's charity in Nepal. They build schools and hospitals for... Started off with the Sherpa community, but now they're doing it much more for the porters, who are the poorest of the poor, the Tamangs and the Rai. So all proceeds from the map will go to Doug Scott's charity, uh, Community Action Nepal. Um, okay, so that's a summary. This is a picture taken from another friend of mine, uh, Leo Dickinson, who's a complete madman. He does sort of extreme kayaking, and he, his latest projects is leaping out of a balloon free-falling, uh, filming peregrine falcons diving. So he's done all sorts of crazy things. But one thing he did uh, many years ago now was um, sail a balloon across the summit of Everest. Two of them. There's the other balloon there. And uh, they sort of serenely glided up from Gokio Lake in the south until they got up to about 8,000 metres where the jet stream hit them. And Leo said his balloon covered, went right past the summit of Everest at about four... 50 miles an hour they had so much gas to keep there's not much air up there so they had so much gas in the balloon to keep it up that there was no room for him so he was strapped on the outside of this balloon with cameras everywhere and he did get the most fantastic uh, video footage and he took what I think is some of the best photographs of Everest this is the Kangshung face in Tibet uh, face first climbed by Stephen Venables that's the South Coal uh, the Nepalese route comes up from the other side um, and again, you know, just uh, 100 metres, you go to Everest Base Camp and there's about 500 people living in a city there, you can do internet and whatever you like, uh, you go 100 metres off to the east and there are spectacular mountains like this, it's just under 8,000 metres, so it's had about 20 ascents, Everest is up in about 6,000 ascents by now, uh, and it shows the roof of this channel, all of the bottom part of both Everest and Gai Chung Kang are granites and metamorphic rocks, and the top part are sedimentary rocks, Ordovician limestones. 
I have here a sample from the summit of Everest. So if you want to climb Everest and stand on the summit, you can come and tread on this afterwards. <laughs> it's a fairly boring rock. It's a little limestone, but it does have tiny little crinoids, which are sea fans, fossils inside. And those formed in a very shallow sea in the Ordovician 400 million years ago. That was a shallow tropical ocean, and it's now sitting at 8,850 metres on top of Everest. And right below those granites, with those sediments with their fossils in, are the granites. This is the channel that's been extruded out. And these granites are all 20 to 15 million years ago. This is the peak of Amadabland, just to the south of Everest. And you can see that these granites are all intruding along these sills with dikes feeding magma up to the higher level. And then at the top, they're all bent over to the north as they're hitting this huge shear zone that drives off into Tibet. The further south you go towards Nepal, this is right in the guts of Everest now in the Rongbuk Valley. Um, this is like the middle of the Amazon, if you like. This is the channel of granite that's coming out from underneath Tibet. And there are these huge rafters of metamorphic rocks with early granites enclosed by very young granite. And this is one of my PhD students, John Cottle, who's now in California. And he was dating every one of these phases of granite uh, in the Everest region. <clears throat> uh, I had another student working in the Makalu area, uh, just to the east of Everest. This is the uh, fourth highest mountain in the world. And uh, spectacular uh, geology up here as well. Unfortunately, when we were up at Makalu, it was right at the height of the Maoist insurrection. And again, that's a very remote part of the world to get to. It's two weeks' walk to get to Makalu Base Camp before you even start on the high granite. And um, low down, we got accosted by several of these bands of uh, Maoists um, who were basically just young kids with guns and sticks. And they would roam into our camp sort of when we were brewing up a cup of tea at the end of the day and just sit down fingering their rifles and say, you know, would you like to make a donation to the Maoist cause? Say, well, no, not really. You know, and after about an hour of, of toing and froing, we'd get them down from like 10,000 rupees down to 1,000 rupees, and by the way, have a cup of tea and stay for dinner. So it was that kind of... But the Nepalese are um, delightful people, and um, eventually when they threw the monarchy out, uh, the Maoists became the government, uh, didn't make any difference to anyone living in Nepal because neither the Maoists, the monarchy or the Congress party, they haven't got any money, so they can't do anything. And Nepal sort of rattles along. It's about the fourth or fifth poorest country in the world. And for some reason, we pump loads of aid into uh, India, Pakistan and these countries, but nothing seems to get to Nepal. That's a bit of a sideline. Anyway, back to the Makalu granites. Um, this is the sort of thing we're doing. That's a single boulder, about that big, with multiple phases of granite dikes. And you can see that these, they're, they're intruded in sequence with the oldest ones, the green, and the youngest ones, these colours here. We can actually put an age on those dikes by extracting these tiny uranium-bearing minerals, zircon and monazite, running them through a mass spectrometer and using uranium lead isotopes to date them. So we can now come up with a very precise chronology of all of these granites, which were forming at depths about 100 kilometres north of the Himalayas today, so equivalent to underneath Tibet. And then they were intruded up along the base of this fault that chops right through the summit of Everest to form the base of Everest today. 
these rocks we can get the pressures and the depth and the temperature and the time. So we can now say for certain that those rocks formed at that depth, at that time, 100 kilometres to the north of Everest, and they're now sitting up here at the top of Everest or the top of Kanchenjunga, in this case, which is the number three highest mountain in the world. Shishapangma is the only 8,000 metre peak completely in Tibet, and we had an expedition to climb it uh, back in the late 80s. And um, we were collecting samples all the way up to try to figure out the cooling rates and the erosion rates of when this granite was exhumed to the Earth's surface. This is from halfway up Shishapangma, looking down onto the Tibetan plateau. So these lakes and the plateau is at 5,200 metres, and I'm standing here at about 7,000 metres and looking down at these huge glaciers that drain off the Himalayas onto Tibet, they eventually peter out to nothing. They literally, these enormous great glaciers, which in Nepal, in the south, dive off into the jungle with huge amounts of flooding every monsoon. In the north, it's a complete rain shadow, totally arid, there's not a blade of grass, and these enormous rivers of ice just completely disappear onto the plateau. Um, So this is the channel flow model. Um, we can constrain all of what's going on in the Himalayas, but we have no idea what's going on deep underneath Tibet. Tibet's a plateau. You can't really see what's going on deep underneath. So we're reliant on geophysical methods to constrain this material here. What the geophysics has found, very, very interestingly, is exactly what we found looking at geology in the Himalayas. There is a middle crustal zone which is now partially molten. There's pockets of liquid in there. And these little pockets here, which the seismic people call bright spots, are actually pockets of granite liquid forming today at similar pressures and depth and temperature to the granites we see on Everest that formed 20 million years ago. So those granites forming underneath Lhasa today will end up in the Himalayas in another 10, 15 million years' time. It's quite amazing, really. So that's the channel flow model. And how do we know what the lower crust is composed of? We know the middle crust is molten, but the lower crust actually still has earthquakes on, which means temperatures are a bit low. Uh, Well, they're low enough to have an earthquake, which is under 600 degrees centigrade. The lower crust is all the lowermost parts of India, which are the oldest rocks on the planet, old Archean Proterozoic rocks. And we know what they are because these are very young dikes, basaltic dikes that shoot up, through the Himalayas, and they have tiny little zenoliths in them. (coughs) And those zenoliths are composed of very high-pressure rocks, um, granulites and ultramafic rocks that formed at extremely high pressures, and therefore we know that the crust was that thick, 80 kilometres thick, 13 million years ago. So it's a bit like a sort of morse, you know, it's a huge detective work working in the Himalayas. You have to use every little bit of rock What can you extract out of that rock in terms of structures, shortening, pressure, temperature, depth and time? And that's what we've been doing. And this is the result, that you come out with a cross-section. This is the peak of Daulagiri in western Nepal. It's one of the 8,000 metre peaks and it's one of the few that's in the sedimentary upper crust. Most of the high peaks are the granites or the mesomorphic rocks down here. This is the view from Poon Hill. If any of you have been trekking in Nepal... Uh, it's, a, it's one of the easy treks to do from Pokhara. You get up there at dawn and you look across the Kaligandaki, which is the world's deepest gorge, to these spectacular peaks of the Dolagiri Range. And right behind you are all the Annapurnas. It's an absolutely wonderful place. 
So you can just get the binoculars out, map in all the structures, and construct a cross-section like this. Uh, here's a peak of Milgury, which um, can sit on a mountain top and have your cup of tea and look across, and then you suddenly see, my God, that's a huge fold in there. That's tracing bedding around a fold with the axial plane of the fold. And if any of you have seen the um, History Channel National Geographic programme on the making of the Himalayas, this is what we were filming here, and there's all of these uh, folds and all of these structures in the Annapurnas on that, um, on that film. Okay, so this is the Kaligandaki. Uh, looking south now, Dalidagiri's way down here. Tibet's just off to the right. This is the Jomasam, where you can actually fly now in a little plane from Pokhara to Jomasam and um, trek along the valley here. Most of the good geology is way up here, so you have to go up, climb quite a ways up into the rock and... Um, these are the sort of outcrops that we're looking at. When we were filming, uh, typical uh, BBC and the film crew, you know, they wanted us to film the whole Himalayas, everything, 10 days. I said, there's no way you can do that. You know, it takes you 10 days to walk anywhere. So I said in the end, well, the only way to do this is to hire a plane. So he said, OK, we'll hire a plane. So I got onto my chum in Pokhara, who... Uh, knows the Waller in Buddha and we hired this plane for a couple of hours and we just flew all around the Annapurnas, Dolagiri. It was like having your personal taxi driver saying, ah, oh, just go up there a bit. It's absolutely fantastic. The only problem was that you couldn't open the window. So most of the filming uh, wasn't precise enough, wasn't accurate enough to uh, broadcast. But I did get some spectacular pictures, including this one, of the south face of Dolagiri with this huge shear zone that constrains the top of the uh, Greater Himalayan section. This is the fishtail, Mashapuchari, the holy mountain, absolutely beautiful peak in the Kaligandaki. And uh, the other TV series I did, exactly the same, the BBC said, right, we weren't going to film the Himalayas and we're going to do the whole lot in seven days. I said, absolutely impossible. Uh, so we ended up, this is Ian Stewart, is in that plane there, and the series that's just been on fairly recently, a couple of months ago. This is where we were filming. So I was in a helicopter with a cameraman and Ian was in the plane with the cameraman and we were sort of chasing each other around around the Annapurnas. And uh, since the helicopter flew much faster than the plane, we had huge difficulty trying to, to um, coordinate. But only, we did get some absolutely spectacular footage. They ended up, after all this enormous cost of flying out Two camera crew, two TV producers, two sound men, two film recorders, Ian and myself, uh, they used about eight minutes. Um, well, on, a, on another trip, uh, in fact, last year, um, I know one of the pilots who works out of Pokhara, who runs little two-seater jets, and he said, uh, there was this... When, when we were in the Kaligandaki, there was news sort of filtered through the grapevine of an enormous landslide that had blocked a river and caused huge floods in Pokhara and we were right across in the next valley so we came we were on our way out and um, went round there it was on the way back into Pokhara and this mountain Annapurna 4 this peak here which is just 7,500 meters the entire west flank of that mountain fell down completely just landslid down landed on the glacier this is all the debris 
that resulted from, that is all debris that's come from this part of the Annapurnas. And that landslide blocked the Seti Valley for about six hours. Behind that, the river built up, built up to a huge dam, then eventually it burst and it caused a catastrophic mud flow that went all the way down to Pokhara, about 25 kilometres, killed 75 people. Um, the most amazing thing is when we got back to Pokhara, I went to the Avia Club and Max, this mad Russian pilot, said, yes, I have pictures of it because I was flying there at the time. And this is one of his pictures. He's got cameras on his wings so he can film in every direction. But he was driving this plane just flying up to Annapurna 4 and suddenly the whole mountain just exploded in front of him. And this is the dust cloud that resulted from that. This is Max, um, great guy. He's, he f has flown all over uh, Afghanistan and Georgia and just about everywhere there's been a conflict involving the Russians. But the last 10 years he flies for the Avia Club in Pokhara, running tourist trips up to Annapurna. Um, and then another friend of mine from Germany... Uh, took these pictures, and this is quite scary. This is the mudslide that actually came down the Seti Cola about six hours after the landslide. This is what it looked like before, at the time of the flood, actually. And this is what it looked like after. You can see all of these houses have gone completely. This is where most people were killed. The water came up to that bridge, but it didn't take the bridge out. We went there two days later, and this was just a sea of liquid mud. You couldn't get anywhere near it, rapidly turning into concrete. So these guys survived, but everyone living in those houses and all of these people unfortunately died. And that's when we're flying back into Pokhara. This is a week later. This is all the debris that came down from Annapurna 4, swept down the river, and it deluged the whole of Pokhara town, including taking out all their water supply. Well, this was just a little minor flood. The Himalayas, Kashmir Valley, Kathmandu Valley, the Pokhara Valley, they've had these going on for about two to five million years. And that's what's caused a lot of the, the big basins that you see in the middle of the Himalayas. So these are the, uh, the, the floods. Okay, the, two, um, the main Himalayan geology is pretty similar all the way along. But when you get to the two corners which we call syntaxes, where the whole mountain belt swings around through 90 degrees, um, those, that geology is completely different. The western one is centred around this mountain of Nanga Parbat in Pakistan, and the eastern one is in southeast Tibet. And here, the rocks are absolutely amazing because they are so young that they were forming literally in the Pleistocene. This is less than a million years ago. These rocks, which are now crustal melt granites, formed at about 20 kilometres depth underneath the Himalayas, and they're now sitting at 8,000 metres in Nanga Parbat, which is quite amazing. These are granites that you normally associate with a deep crust, cordierite-bearing granites full of these green minerals, cordierite. And the age is 0.7 million years. Well, that's Pleistocene. That's what geography people work on, you know, glaciers and tills and things. So the Himalayas are very, very active. I've been trying for years to work in this region here, which is the eastern syntaxis of the Himalayas. This is in southeast Tibet, centred around the mountain of Namchi Bawa. Uh, unfortunately, the politics of Tibet and China make it extremely difficult. So we did manage to get there, but only for five days before we were arrested by the local policemen and sent packing back to Lhasa.
Okay, I'm running rapidly out of time, so I'm going to skip a lot of Tibet, because Tibet is pretty flat and boring compared to the Himalayas, which is fantastic scenically. Um, Tibet, you can drive for days and days across flat land like this, which is spectacular in its own way, but um, not as impressive as the Himalayas. Um, <coughs> one thing that we have found in Tibet is that there is this spectacular unconformity and a lot of the major crustal shortening, remember in the Himalayas this is all younger than 50 million years old, a lot of the shortening in Tibet was actually older than 70 because it's overlain by these granite, these volcanics that we can date. And that's very interesting because it means a lot of the Tibetan plateau was actually high and thick before the Indian collision. So before 50 million years, Tibet probably looked a bit like Bolivia, Peru today, that sort of Altiplano-type geology. Um, so the plateau is pretty flat and boring for, a, for many geologists, but a long strike to the west, the Karakoram, which is the same geologically, is the opposite. Karakoram is the most incredible, spectacular mountain range on the planet, bar none. Half of the world's high peaks are here. It's in the region of K2, Mustak Tower, Gashabram. All the high peaks along the Pakistan-China border are here, and they really are amazing mountains. Uh, you have to be young to go here because this is extremely difficult climbing and it's extremely remote. So our expeditions to the Karakoram, I went every year for 10 years, uh, were all tied up with huge amounts of porters and climbing gear and we were climbing mountains like this at the same time as you know, I would choose the area according to where I wanted to do geology. And uh, we went up quite a few of these mountains, K2, the Abruzzi Spur on the right, and Mashabram. This is looking straight up the West Ridge. This is a new peak we climbed, uh, Biali, looking north towards China, but all the 8,000-metre peaks are straddled along the border here. Uh, and it is such a spectacular place, it's quite incredible. So I've got a loads of pictures of the Karakoram. I'm just going to show you a few of them. The Mustak Tower, first climbed by Joe Brown and Martin Boyson in the 70s, good ancient Brits. Um, Mashabram, Nanga Parbat, over 100 kilometres to the south. This is Layla Peak, which is the most beautiful mountain in the world. That's the front cover of my book there. Uh, Chris Bonington took this picture, the first ascent of the Ogre. That's when he broke his ribs and Doug Scott Abzal broke both his legs, had an absolute epic crawling down this mountain. Uh, it's, there's, it's full of the most fantastic mountaineering stories. And, of course, the geology is really unbelievable. Uh, so a lot of the um, peaks, the high peaks of the Himalaya, of the Karakoram, are very deep crustal rocks, metamorphic rocks and granites. And we've spent the last 20 years running through a lot of these regions, sampling and dating the rocks. And what we've found here is that unlike the Himalayas, where everything is very well constrained time-wise, in the Karakoram, we've had sporadic metamorphism for the last 65 million years, so a huge long time. All of these blue boundaries from 65 million years to the day before yesterday are con well-constrained timing of peak metamorphism. And most of these big granites were formed between 26 and 13. So similar ages to the Karakoram granites, a sort of mirror image on the Asian plate. Um, okay, uh, so these are three of the most wonderful peaks in the Himalaya, in the Karakoram. 
The Trango Towers, Great Trango and Nameless Spire. This is two kilometres of vertical granite. This is the prime exam uh, aim for all of the uh, top-class rock climbers today. Um, and there's about ten routes going up here now, all extremely difficult. Um, another crazy friend of mine actually base jumped off the top of Great Trango. That's the world's largest single slab of granite. It's two kilometres from the top to the bottom. It took them six weeks to climb up, and they jumped off with cameras on their helmets and on their chest, all over, two of them, and they went into free fall, sort of tumbling like this because of the weight of the camera. But they fell uh, from the top there down to the bottom in 15 minutes, and they took the most spectacular video footage ever. If you ever get the chance to see it, it's absolutely mind-blowing. They were about that far away from the wall, and because they were spinning, this two-kilometre spire, nameless spire, would keep going like this in the frame as the wall went past. So if you want to be really scared, have a look at that video. It's really incredible. The geology is just amazing. You just walk up these glaciers, there's the granite contact, and these are big rafters of older rocks sitting in the middle. The north side of K2 in China is even more spectacular, but this is incredibly remote and difficult to get to. It's about a 10-day trek in with camels, and you have to go right to the far west of Xinjiang to do it. But the rewards are unbelievable. So when we were working there in the 80s and 90s, um, I had a jeep. Uh, when I was a postdoc before I came to Oxford in Leicester. This is our Leicester University Jeep. Uh, Jeeps aren't that useful in Pakistan, in the northern areas, because there's about two roads. But you can get there, and occasionally when you get stuck in a river, you get the whole village to come along and help lift it out. So then you head off trekking up into the mountains, and then the big rivers have got these flying fox bridges, which are easy enough to cross. And then when there's no bridges on the north side your reliance on either, you can't swim that river, it's far too uh, strong currents and bits of debris floating around. But you can get these yaks, and these are absolutely spectacular animals. They're just enormous great balls of hot air. Just leap on the yak, John Wayne style, kick it into the river, and it doggy paddles across. And you get off, <laughs> unload the luggage, turn the yak around, kick it back into the river, and you get all the expedition across that way. So that's how we worked on the northern side of the Karakoram, and without yaks, it would have been completely impossible. And then after that, when you've run out of uh, trekking flat space, it's climbing. This is climbing on the Lobsang Spire. And this shows the typical sort of uh, high-altitude geology that we were doing uh, back in those days when I was considerably younger than I am today. Um, but the Trango Towers and the Baltoro really is one of the most spectacular regions. And again, you will never see a better granite contact than that, these dikes coming off it. And we've now dated every phase of granite right through the Baltoro from end to end. So it's actually, it's been extremely satisfying over the last 30 years getting all of this geological information going. Uh, my house is full of a lot of rock samples. Mostly all of these live at home. Um, some of these pictures are in my book. And um, I'm afraid I'd just... When it comes to deleting pictures, I just said, there's no way I can't delete these ones. <laughs> so um, I'm going to finish with just a few... Oh, yes, um, the whole story of Tibet and the indentation of India, one of the big stories is how far has Southeast Asia been shunted sideways 
along these giant strike-slip faults. This is like the San Andreas fault, but it's about three times as long, twice as active seismically. So I've been working in Vietnam along this part of the fault, um, which I don't really have time to get into. And I've been working also in Burma along this fault, uh, figuring out the timing of motion on these faults and whether Southeast Asia was actually shunted out or not. A lot of this is tied up with sedimentary rocks, so the uplift of the Himalayas dammed all the, uh, the early parts of the Himalayan rivers. This is the Sutledge ri River, which is a big antecedent river that flows down into India. And during the rise of the Himalaya, it just built up this enormous great lake behind it. That lake is about 700 kilometres long, 80 kilometres wide, and nearly a kilometre deep. And at some stage, probably about 100,000 or maybe a million years ago, the big earthquake and that whole lake drained out through the Sutledge and flooded out onto the plains of India. And that's what causes most of the plains of the Indus and the Ganges either side. So we know pretty much what's going on in the Himalayas. Karakoram, reasonably well, but parts of Tibet, the plateau, are almost completely unknown. These whole mountain ranges in eastern Tibet, we know more about the moon than we do these ranges. Nobody has ever been in there. They are politically very difficult to get to, um, but there is an enormous scope for doing more field work there once all the political problems are solved. There are some absolutely incredible mountains. This is the flight from Lhasa to Chengdu, just looking out the window at mountains like this. Quite amazing. And then Burma, the last five years I've been working in Burma. We have quite an active project now looking at some of the tin granites along these faults here. And it's one of the best ruby localities in the world. I have a few samples of these outside. Uh, absolutely spectacular. So to summarise, uh, these are the three major mountain ranges I've spent the last 30 years in. This is the pre-continental collision Oman type. And we know that the entire orogeny from start to finish was about 23 million years. The Himalayan type started about 50 million years ago, still ongoing today. We don't know how much longer it's going to go on for, but as long as India is keeping pushing northwards into Asia, that will continue to keep the Himalayas alive and active. And the Karakoram, much longer lasting, sort of Bolivian Altiplano type geology pre-collision, and then all of the late post-collisional crustal thickening, producing these spectacular granites that we see along the Baltoro Glacier. So I'd just like to end with this great quote that I saw in... Uh, Parodzong. This is the Tiger's Nest Monastery in Bhutan, which is an absolutely wonderful place. Uh, this is the Cosmic Mandala. It says, The becoming, the being, and the vanishing of all worlds and the impermanence of all existing things. So Himalaya mountains are made. They fall down in the sea. They're eroded, taken out to the Indian Ocean. The whole process starts again. And with that, I'd like to end. Thank you very much.